to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Adrian Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Well, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm um, apprehensive, but I feel like I feel like we're gonna exercise some demons here today, Ed. We're gonna do mm. we're gonna do some fine work, and I believe you and I have both had haircuts. Uh, yes. So we are bringing our new dues. Uh, we we are looking smart, and so we're here to bring our um, our well groomed opinions. Mm, yeah, we've come correct, as they say, to really uh, take a hammer to the movie Five Hundred Days of Summer, uh, which we're discussing because it's its tenth anniversary. The movie came out in two thousand and nine. But also because uh, we're recording this a little bit ahead of time. When this episode goes up, I will be uh, in the UK. I think by the time people hear it, uh, I'll probably be in Sheffield hanging out with Matt. But uh, So we're recording it a little ahead of time, so there's no news this week. We just wanted to talk about um, a single movie. And usually when we do these sort of things, it's usually a movie that uh, one or both of the people involved uh, like. Um <laughs> And, this uh, is so this, not that episode. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit a uh, bit off model for us um, in terms of our, our past uh, relationships with this movie. Uh, you had not seen it in full prior to this viewing, uh, other than, as, as uh, you said to me, a uh, hundred times watching the beginning and ending of it back when it was playing in the showroom, the cinema we both worked out at the time that Correct. worked at at the time it came out. Yes. Where you would often, you know, people would often, you'd have to go in five minutes before the beginning and end just to make sure that things were working and to make sure that, you know, people weren't stumbling out and opening the door. Uh, so that so this is one of those movies for you. I think one of mine uh, in terms of movies that I watched the beginning and end of a lot was uh, Synecdoche, New York. Oh, what a um, bloody hell. <laughs> quite an intense movie to kind of keep walking in out of, but yep. eventually be, you become inured to its bone-deep sadness when you're mainly concerned about whether or not there's going to be popcorn to clean up. Yeah, but, didn't, but... that didn't happen with 500 Days of Summer. I was not immune to it. It, it wounded me each time. So I'm, I'm here with my hatchet. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna find to get some payback. But uh, I saw it when it came out. I remember going to see it. I remember not liking it very much, but also it not really being a movie that I thought about much past watching it. I remember having some discussions with friends about it and we'll probably talk about some of the the points they made in defense of it when it came out um at some point over the course of this episode but other than like watching it that one time and talking to, to people where because i was pretty much always the negative um ballast in any conversation of it like um people would you know talk to me about offering why they think it was a good movie and i'd be there just saying like well, I, I just didn't really like it but Outside of that, it's not a movie that I've really thought of all that much in the the past 10 years. So when you suggested uh, watching it, because it, it, it had been out for 10 years, I thought I'd come into it and think, uh, go into it and watch it and come away thinking, uh, you know, it's still got some, it's still not a very good movie, but it's got some kind of charm to it and some moments that are, that are all right. But I, 
I was not expecting to come away really, really hating it uh, as I did this time because I, I kind of finished watching it. Well, I didn't even like finish watching it and think, God, this is this is dreadful. I was shouting at one point, shut up, shut up, please shut up. And, <laughs> and just being like doing that thing where if you're renting something digitally, you kind of like just kind of idly press accidentally press the remote to see how much is left yeah that it's got to scroll through and there was like another 20 minutes left and i was like oh no how but yeah uh this 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 viewing of it for me really took it from a movie that was kind of a non-entity to a movie that i just found really aggressively unpleasant aggressively unpleasant is the word i oh ed where do we start uh we can start from literally the first like thing you see in the screen on the oh, screen yeah. what an excellent place to start so the very beginning uh title card is mm-hmm. a disclaimer of sorts saying that the following uh picture is not based on anyone living or dead apart from you jenny beckman bitch mm, yeah quite a i don't want to say bold move the thing is is that jenny beckman is is a legit actual real living breathing human being who Mm. was in a relationship with scott i want to say neustadter but i think that i might be over germanizing and need to americanize neustadter possibly um apologies i've not heard your name scott um i'm just gonna eviscerate one of the works that you're most well known for I will apologise for my own ignorance about how to say your name, though. He um, had been at the London School of Economics, where he met Jenny Beckman. And it does not go into detail in terms of that story, but does say that 500 Days of Summer is heavily based on their relationship. The sort of mention of um, the ending being truly unspeakably awful somehow, um, and off the back of that, designed to write this I just I don't really I mean the whole purpose of that joke what what are the mechanics of that joke because I believe it is intended as a joke Mm -hmm. and it and I think it just sums up and distills the entire film's really icky relationship to credibility Mm -hmm. and how seriously you're meant to take anything at any one point because I feel like this is a film that is, it has its defensiveness baked in into it mm. in a way that is like, oh no, we just meant that as a joke or, oh no, we're actually parodying this. Oh no, it's actually his poor view of her that we're, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, you're not, you're not doing that inherently for the whole thing. This is a film that it's jerking itself off in so many different directions. It's hard to keep track. Mm. Yeah, it, it that opening, you know, three title cards, it really does get to the heart of the the balance that the movie is trying to strike and just not really having the the intelligence and the grace to do it of because it honestly, if you remove bitch from the tithe from it, yeah. I think it, it the the joke works fine. It's and an actual joke, it, apart from using her real name. But yeah, if you use a fake name, yes. then 
that's that's this, the joke is exactly the same. You don't need to actually call someone. You certainly don't need to call a real person a bitch, which is uh, <laughs> in your movie that is going into you know theaters and will live on forever on DVD and and uh, um, Blu-ray and streaming or whatever. But like it, it's trying to do this thing of like you say, couching everything so much in a joke and irony, but still like doing the thing that is in this instance kind of hurtful to a real person and you know kind of trying to be edgy in a way that doesn't really serve anything and i think that's kind of a problem that the the whole movie has and like you say a real kind of mix of tones that and and levels of reality and the question of how much you're meant to take anything in the movie seriously that just doesn't work at all particularly like the further you get into it and the more they try and like be playful with with form and things like that and i feel like i i think at the time when I, when i watched it the the that opening bit did get a couple of it did get some laughs from the the theater and i remember just being kind of like well, this is going to be something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think the thing is, is that Scott did go to Jenny Beckman um, IRL to explain to her what he was doing. And I suppose ask for permission to use her real name. It all gets very strange. Mm. Anyway, apparently she's on the record as saying that she identified more with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Tom, than she did with her own cipher, Summer played by mm. Zoe Deschanel, which I think is very interesting and something that that's a film I'd rather rather watch, frankly. Um, I think we're well overdue a uh, Ruby Sparks 500 Days of Summer from a toxic feminine point of view, but uh, maybe I'll write it. Anyway, tangent. And I think there's odd little... When you're saying that, Ed, about sort of the stylistic choices, that the fact that this, the blue colour scheme that runs throughout it mm. is to highlight and enhance Zoe Deschanel's eyes mm-hmm. which I think is I don't know, that just struck me as really serial killer-y <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know I, I mean, I'm all about using a colour palette and, and enhancing and, and colour schemes mean things and elicit emotion and cultural significance in us but basically like her eyes are blue so we're gonna make the film a bit blue i Mm. don't know that just again it's not as deep as it thinks it is it's not as funny as it thinks it is because not only you know that bitch beat that makes that joke you know as you say works perfectly well without needing to call anyone a bitch so i think the bitch rule of jokes. <laughs> if you don't need to say bitch, don't say it. I, th- I think the characterization is also just very poor and not from, and I'm not talking about Tom and Summer here. It's, it's the ensemble cast of characters who really don't feel like real people at all in classic mm. rom-com fashion. But not only do they not feel like real people, they just contradict themselves quite a yeah. bit. Because at least, you know, if you look at your Judy Greer, because it always seems to be Judy Greer. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. she's not really a real person, but at least she is consistent enough to be like, I love you, best friend. 
You mm-hmm. should do what you believe in. You're too good for him. Oh, but you do love him. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like that there's that consistency at least. Whereas I watching this, I could not get my head around Mackenzie, played by Jeffrey Arendt, Mr. Christina Hendricks, who is I'm still I'm still trying to process this, Ed, having hours after having watched the film. Summer work works at the same place that Tom works. And he admires her uh, aesthetically. And then something like two days into the counter, because we are, of course, on 500 days of summer. So I think I believe it is day three, just because summer hasn't said hello specifically to them. Mackenzie says that she's stuck up bitch. Mm. Yeah. And which is then which Tom not only agrees with, even though he has never said a single word to this woman, the next day, because he's blaring the Smiths out of his headphones far too, listening to things far too loud, um, mm-hmm. and she says, oh, I like the Smiths, and he's like, oh my God, she likes the Smiths. That means she's has a person that she's, you know, oh, it's it's just ridiculous. And you know when it's something that, a trope like that and it's like did that start then was this where this originated because we had elizabeth town in what 2004 uh yeah around about then around about then and we had garden state as well (sighs) but i think i think garden state maybe it's just natalie portman but i don't Mm -hmm. think she comes across as manic pixie dream girl as people looking back on it like elizabeth town and as much as you and i love kirsten dunst Mm-hmm. not even she could save that yeah you know that ca- character is a big word overstatement in elizabeth town and i think joseph gordon levitt and zoe deschanel speaking of charm the only way that i think the film works is because they manage to make those people feel real mm-hmm. and i think yeah. summer feels like the most multi-dimensional person and she's not actually this mystery. She is incredibly real, I think, because Zoe Deschanel really quite likes Summer as well. Yeah. And Summer is throughout incredibly reasonable um, mm. and very upfront about her needs and does try to be more intimate. And then um, ultimately it doesn't work out. And it's the scene in the bar where she manages to be the most plausible and then the least plausible, (laughs) or at least maybe that's the worst decision Summer makes for herself and everyone else in the entire film. But in the bar where she gets, um, she and Tom are seeing each other quite casually. Tom is being a fantastic date and just berating complete strangers for not dressing like they did in the Mm sixties. And then some boorish, probably um stockbroker hits on yeah, summer there's a real finance guy vibe to him yeah 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 like this the skin tone and the and the tie it's definitely a strong combo um and he quite ag- aggressively comes on to summer she tells him to back off very politely it's a masterclass mm-hmm. in how to try and um firmly but politely ward off unwanted attention and then um uh tom makes it about him they throw punches 
Summer again is then completely reasonable where she's like, you sort of made that about you. And then she arrives on his doorstep drenched in the rain being like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have got angry. No, she should should have done. This is, Mm. oh my God, Ed, it's just, it's just full. It's full of this. And then, you know, after, it really struck me that after Tom has this fight with Summer, some two women are walking up the stairs in the opposite direction plenty of space for everyone but no no no. he makes a point of being like oh no after you mm. so not only is he the kind of man that is you know irritated like ticked off with his possibly girlfriend he's made it very clear she doesn't want a boyfriend he's also the kind of man who will take that energy and unleash it on other women because all women are then terrible if <laughs> if his girlfriend standing girlfriend not girlfriend is standing up for herself oh god they're all so. Oh no! No one comes off well. And I forgot how. I forgot how badly. Everyone comes off in this, and I mm. admittedly having only seen the first five and the end five, and occasionally clips, because the, the expectations versus reality scene, mm. I think is one that gets sort of shared around quite a lot, and I think that is the most damning of Tom in the film but yeah. it is not representative of Tom throughout the film at all. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me in in you talking about how like Zoe Deschanel does make Summer feel like a real person a lot of the time is that the uh, it, it really does feel as if she is acting in a different movie from what everyone else is trying to make. Yes. Because at the same time that you know, she is being a very real, reasonable person in a, in a lot of those scenes and comes across as feeling like a very complex, uh, uh, more complex and three-dimensional a person than I think she's given credit for. I think like the character is often um, lumped in with, like you say, the manic pixie dream girl thing when that's totally not what the character is at all. The movie also has bits like, you know, there's that whole bit where it's, where the voiceover, which is so portentous, is like laying out her backstory, oh, yeah. and it goes into like black and white, and then it's talking, and then it's talking about how because she put a quote from Bell and Sebastian in her yearbook, the sales of the Arab Strap went up by two hundred uh, percent in the little town in Michigan where she grew up, and sales at the ice cream store she worked at shot went through the roof that summer. Like there is this real preciousness in the presentation of her and this idea that like everything around her is very manic pixie dream girlish and it's not really backed up by the performance and yes. that's that there's lots of moments of real disconnect in the movie but that that's one of the ones where i was watching it i thought it was it was really weird the way that it was kind of crafting this over the top kind of both paul thomas anderson and wes anderson <laughs> Style kind of backstory for them in terms of the presentation with a performance that, for the most part, is like, oh, like she's just like a person and she's just, you know, trying to live her life. And uh, everyone in the movie is ogling her in in a kind of in one way or another either lasciviously or because they believe that she is the one that's gonna kind of redeem them but also the movie itself is kind of really geared towards kind of 
exploiting her in some sense or another, uh, which I think you really see playing out in that in in that scene. For sure, because it's definitely an observation that I think if any woman beyond Zoe Deschanel uh, had any involvement in the creative process rather than being a muse, Mm. oh, Jenny Beckman, I, I feel so sorry for you, that that could have been a moment of real insight. Because I think what that whole sequence is trying to say is like, Summer's a very pretty young woman who seems to have a kind mm. of sadness to her, which sad boys will see is depth. And, oh, hey, you're sad like me. Be sad with me. That they find attractive about her. And that Tom's reaction is not unique. But I don't see that as characterization, And it falls flat yeah. on being able to actually talk you know, make a comment about these kinds of men because I think they're trying to say that it's Tom Mm. and it's not. It's Again, it's just a very confused film because I don't think there's enough self-awareness for this to really bloom as something like, you know, you look at Ruby Sparks, for example, that's very much pillaring a kind of artistic temperament and a spin on the Pygmalion myth. And the fact that it was, you know, co-written Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan, they've got those different perspectives. They've got those, you know, whereas this is just written by two guys, one who'd gone through a couple of breakups and one who's very happily married. That does not actually make... <laughs> it's, there's just there's just not that um, perspective. Um, and people, you know, liken it to High Fidelity and Annie Hall. And it's like, well, yeah, we've already got Annie Hall and High Fidelity. How is this building on that? Mm. Yeah, I think it's it, it's funny you say that it's not a, a self-aware movie because it is it's self-aware in one sense and that it's very aware of the cliches that it is making fun of, but also not seemingly not aware of the fact that it's running through a bunch of different cliches like the thing that i remember being really annoyed by at the time and even now find even more annoying is like the way in which it handles the chloe grace moretz character she's like fine in the performance and everything but like there's something so gratingly tired about like the child who's wise beyond their years who's yeah. like there to help to help the adults kind of see through the all of the haze of their life so they can't realize that they're in their own way or whatever and like the it is one of the things that really undercuts the any attempt at like realism that's there in the other kind of other parts of the movie and really points to the fact that whilst the movie itself is kind of like perfectly happy to kind of like mock the cliches that it's considers itself above because i do feel like it's a movie that thinks it's above the genre that it's in like everyone always complains about the term elevated horror in kind of recent horror movies this does feel like elevated rom-com to me <laughs> uh, yes. like a genuine example of it totally um, but yeah. And Ra- yeah rachel the the his younger half sister played by a young uh Chloe Grace Moretz, who I've got used to being mm-hmm. in her young woman form now, so to see her as a girl, as a child again, was quite the shock. You know, hey, he can't be a misogynist. 
he listens to his little sister and she plays mm. soccer and tells him to yeah. not be a pussy. And I'm like, oh my God, it's just so, you're right. Like, and you know, let's not forget, um, there's a lovely jolt of uh, homophobia. Mackenzie um, says that Tom sounds gay, uh, mm. to which Tom responds that he's only had one girlfriend in whatever grade. So why Tom would even listen to Mackenzie at the beginning when he's saying that Summer's a stuck-up bitch. I also found the often lauded scene in Ikea more racist uh, than, than I realised. Yeah. You know, why would you specify there is a Chinese family in our bathroom when you live in America in Ikea? Hmm. I don't know, that's an American family. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that joke flies when it's an anchorman. And they are genuinely like, what the hell? The you know the seventies, that that that's a film that is self-aware, and is saying, look, we we are, we've made a joke because this guy thinks that diversity is an old old wooden ship. Like we know where we're at because what Anchorman is trying to do is constantly make fun of those attitudes. Five hundred days of summer is not. It is not looking to puncture those attitudes it is not self-aware enough to try and ask for forgiveness it is creepy (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. just trying to see how far it can get away with what it's doing and that's why i think it's genuinely harmful and that final scene i mean i know sorry i'm skipping ahead here (laughs) because an all around because i am it's just this I mean, the movie itself skips around, so... Thank you. We're having a non-linear discussion about a non-linear film, which, again, makes it feel horribly repetitive because I think we go through the same beats over and over again, but not in a way that is ever actually looking to Tom to take accountability for his emotional behaviour. Yet this film, I literally feel like my head was dropped into a pinball machine and I've just been scattered through it. The final scene of the film, well, the very final shot of the film is Tom looking to camera in a kind of here we go again way. <laughs> like, no, no. If 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 the film were genuinely self-aware, we'd we'd have some moment where he he'd change, but we're like, oh, this lovable rogue, not lovable, <laughs> not rogue. And again, possibly the worst closing line to a film ever. Mm. yeah that's that's one of the things that 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 really stuck with me throughout the throughout the decade of him meeting a a a woman at a job interview to work at an architect's firm the woman played by minka kelly who uh at the time uh i was like oh minka kelly because uh, i really liked friday night lights uh, and she was very good on that show, so I was like, I, I based there was like a, there's a good five year period whenever anyone from Friday Night Lights shows up in something, I'd be like, yay, yeah. it's Landry. Although now it's more like, hey, hey, Jesse Plemons, he's just in everything. Cool. Yes. <laughs> and uh, weird. So. Uh, not the the guy from that cast I would have expected to be in everything, but I'm very happy <laughs> that he has because he's wonderful. But yeah, she shows up and they have a kind of like a a, a little conversation. He decides to ask her out for a coffee and he introduces himself. And of course, he has been going out with uh, a girl. He had previously gone out with a girl named Summer. They'd broken up. This is well established. This is what the movie is about. And then she says, I'm Autumn. And it is like uh, that combination of that 
and him looking at the camera being like, what? Is is just so bad. It's it's it truly is one of the most grating choices <laughs> for a movie. And like if I had enjoyed the movie, that would have been the thing that would have just made me go, Oh fuck everyone who made this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that being the thing that I saw about a hundred times. hundred times. What it felt like. I remember thinking, Oh, that's that's bad. Mm, that's a first draft idea. Right? And I don't know why I thought I was expecting anything. I thought, you know, oh, is that just like the beginning? The beginning wasn't great and the end wasn't great, but maybe in the middle something happened. It redeems itself. No, 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 no. And, and again, it just hammers home that idea of there is no change. The seasons are inevitable. Mm. The leaves fall off the trees, but it's still the same tree. Tom is the same. Mm. It's it's the most resoundingly odd bum note because I think the discussion that they have on a bench is actually on 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 the bench on on their kind of like Tom's favorite lookout point is genuinely very. I I think that's where the actual film and the tension of the film that's interesting happens in that summer through her experience with Tom, she actually grows and and allows some romance into her life it's just not with him and so Mm. she has actually learned and grown from her relationship with tom and i just think summer is far more interesting and has more tension and actually actually has a sodding character arc ed Mm -hmm. um that you know i'd much rather have 500 days of summer from summer's point of view you know even though we do get a shred of another woman um woman's perspective of joe sweet allison who manages mm-hmm. to slink away during karaoke but we're not again there's there's no uptake from tom on this at all at any any point and y- you know what's odd and, and and strange ed is that this film is directed by mark webb who mm. was instrumental in the first sort of series of crazy ex-girlfriend i think served as producer yeah um, for a long time um well for the entire series um, i can't remember exactly what level of production role so how much he... i think he directed the pilot i think he directed the pilot and i think he co-wrote a couple of episodes hmm. um so it's not like he's incapable i mean it's 2009 right i'm not i'm not trying to you know we all we all grow maybe his experience off the back of that was like oh god what have i unleashed into the world (laughs) um but that's the frustrating thing is that there are little bits of it actually in summer yeah that i think could have could have been could have made the film more redeeming than it is but unfortunately it is stuck in a very particular sad boy landfill indie dimension and I do think someone in the production design team, right? I do think someone in the production design team cottoned onto this because there is a print by Tom's bed inexplicably in a frame and it is a giant red cockerel. Mm-hmm. And my eye just went straight to it. <laughs> so yes. Oh, we need to make it all blue because her eyes are blue slash there's there's a giant cock (laughs) just just saying but tom's also just he's such an asshole to everyone 
Like, mm. I mean, we've all had bad breakups, right? But the fact that he, you know, unleashes hell on Rhoda, sweet Rhoda, who comes to Thursday meeting with, I think, a very strong if first draft, which is what the Thursday meeting is for, as we are inferred to believe, idea of inspirational an inspirational range. Um, oh yeah, do we do we forget to mention he works at fucking greetings card factory office? I don't know what the correct term is. Um, yeah. So Rhoda's come up with a new inspirational range of greetings cards based on her own cat pickles, and and Tom says that it's it's a pile of shit. Which Mackenzie then is like, hey, that's too far. And I'm like, how are you suddenly the moral backbone here, Mackenzie? Mm-hmm. Sit down. And also, what's wrong with pickles? Like, has has Tom not ever not been on the internet? I don't know. I just, I just, you know, wrote, and again, Rhoda's like set up as this kind of sweet, maybe slightly batty cat lady, and he's just laying into her because he's because he's sad. Oh God, it's just it's just mean, and and it it encapsulates everything I think is wrong about the cultural discussion of like male emotion. Because, of, mm. of course, we are all human beings and we all have feelings. But I worry that the discourse around men sharing their feelings means that men share these kinds of feelings, which they feel are ultimately, resp- you know, the due diligence and responsibility and caused by women. <laughs> mm. Oh, God. I would rather watch the giant... Yes, half vampire, half giant. Tom and Summer go and see it, and they look like they're having a whale of a time. The giant. <laughs> yes, uh, I know what it yeah. sounds like and looks like, <laughs> and I know they're doing it on purpose, but I don't care. I want my half vampire, half giant, dodgy sounding movie, please. That that scene, that was the scene where I was just shouting "shut up" at the screen. <laughs> Both, both because it's it's like just relentlessly mean to what seems like a perfectly nice lady, but also because like there is there are a few things that I that just turn me off more in movies than the scene where the hero stands up at a meeting or they're giving a speech somewhere and then suddenly they're like I can't do this anymore and like they either walk <laughs> off or they use it to be to show that they're the real truth teller. Of all this sort of stuff, and like that, um, it's just like it's such a it's such a a rancid cliche that that never works and always just feels like a really lazy thing where you basically were like, well, we need this character to have a realization or they need to say a bunch of stuff, um, so let's just have them monologue it and have them say it in an improper place because then it blows up their life and you know we can set up the final act of the movie or whatever. Yeah. It's it's pretty much always terrible. This is one of the worst worst examples of it I think I've ever seen. And that that again, it gets to that whole thing of like the movie is perfectly happy to make fun of cliches throughout from rom coms and kind of like these these kind of like silly moments. But also it or has these one these other cliches that it just completely leans on and doesn't examine at all, and. Like there's nothing wrong with a cliche in and of itself, you know. There are only certain and only a certain number of stories that you can tell in kind of like a big mainstream movie. So like it's fine to lean on them, but to be to act as if you're above all of these other cliches and then to just lean so hard into others just 
speaks to that sense of them feeling like they're above the genre that they're in and that they consider movies where, like you say, where uh, men are just kind of like spouting off a bunch of negative emotions uh, in improper moments. Uh, yeah, again, speaks to that idea that they're just kind of hypocrites about a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. In terms of the character of Tom, I think one of the, you also alluded to it earlier, but one of the defences that I've often heard of the movie over and over again is that people say, oh, like, the movie's all from Tom's perspective, so you can't really take too much of it seriously whenever it does something that's kind of weird and sexist or whatever, because it's all from his perspective. But, like, he is such an unappealing person. Yeah throughout even in the quite kind of like private moments when he's uh you know or even in the moments where he's meant to be uh he's meant to be viewed positively he just comes off as like so cloying and so like you say just like so relentlessly sad but in the kind of the sense of like uh, no real agency over his own life or whatever like he there is just like a real he's just he's just he's a very he's just a very boring person in the in the sense that he's like there's not really much going on for him in the movie and it's really hard to see why anyone would spend any time with him and summer sees this right and in the expectations versus reality bit you know she does say a slightly pointed thing in in front of uh collected company but that might mm. that, that's intended i think as a i believe in you moment but you know yeah that, that tom reacts quite so angrily to her saying that you know he could he could be anything that he wanted to that he's a trained architect and mm. you know someone says oh why why not and it's like oh why create something temporary like a building when you can do something permanent like a greetings card and then there's just this like deadpan you know this kind of like dead-eyed stare which immediately flashes into a smile and a laugh and I'm like oh my god that's terrifying <laughs> you know and and it's clear that he is stuck in a rut and mm. but the film isn't as aware of that the film doesn't say like oh you know actually the breakup spurs him to realize maybe I've been projecting too much and focusing so hard on this relationship that I've forgotten that actually I probably do want to be an architect and I should get back on that and what is the point of having a narrator at all? Mm. Because there is a bit of what the narrator sort of, the, the, the function is to essentially have this arc and to give Summer a bit more bolstering and that, you know, she didn't have, I think the line, you know, she loved nothing more than her long black hair and also that she felt nothing at all when she cut it off is like, could be incredibly sad if, the writers actually liked summer more than they do mm. but is setting up for being like oh she feels nothing numb yeah. love blah and like there's a difference between a sort of salty regard for your characters where you embrace them with all of their flaws and this is kind of what you were saying about cliches and and tropes right like there there are tropes and you know this isn't even really a rom-com it's not like a meat it's not a meat cute specifically it's all quite cards on the table it's it's non-linear at the very beginning you know boy meets girl but this is not a love story what mm. what is it then what is the story that you're that you're trying to tell because it's clear to us that this isn't 
love. And oh god, and yet with the, you know, Tom's sense of self-importance and entitlement, the whole, you know, like you say, one of the worst examples of the monologuing and then I can't do this anymore and storming off. You can't Mm -hmm. do this anymore. Good. Literally no one asked you to do it. (laughs) So stop. Also, like, in terms of his self-centered importance, like, one of the things about it that I'd forgotten is, like, his worldview is completely validated by the end of the movie because of the conversation that he has with Summer. Basically, Summer comes around to his, his way of thinking and there's not... And he has kind of affected this kind of like cynical face or whatever where he's like talking to her and he's saying like, you know, it's all meaningless or whatever. But like he, like you say, he doesn't really have an arc over the course of the movie, which I think is partly the problem of having a non-linear movie like that. Mm. Like it's kind of hard to track where exactly someone is in their progression. And because all we see of him is either him kind of in the happy relationship and him being miserable, there's no real sense of him going through this kind of real change until the very end when it's all kind of crammed and it's like, oh, he suddenly decides to read about architecture again and then he's going out for architecture jobs. And it's like all kind of like crammed in and it feels as if, oh, like this this change in him has come more or less out of nowhere as opposed to being something that kind of gradually would have been built up to if you were telling a story in a linear fashion uh and, and then at the end like he's the, the narrator is like saying like he had he'd come to realize that all of this stuff was false and he was sure of it well almost sure and then he goes back and talks to Minka kelly and says the terrible line and like it's, it is literally just like his he's got a better job he's learned nothing changed basically nothing as a person and apparently his way of viewing the world is the correct one yeah men like, you're fine yep yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like you say, like Summer off to the side, not really the focus of the movie, other than as uh, the the kind, of, basically as an object in terms of like determining the palette of the movie, and in terms of the fact that she is um, ogled by by people and by the camera for a fair fair part of it, goes through a much like a more radical change, mm. and kind of goes through this has has this like startling realization off screen that then she relates sitting on the the bench and yeah it really does it does feel to to me like that puts page the idea that you're seeing the movie from tom's perspective because if it was from his perspective then like summer would not seem like such a reasonable person yeah like if it was trying to be some sort of satire of a callow young man kind of suddenly realizing like the uh, the, the the early parts of the movie would not play out as like just two regular people hanging out and i think this also maybe speaks to the disconnect between not just like uh zoe deschanel's performance and what the movie around her is trying to do but also maybe joseph gordon levitt's because i do feel as if he maybe as an actor knows that tom is yeah not great but like the movie around him doesn't like the the handful of fights you see of them that's another problem is like we're introduced to them both breaking up and talking about how they're like Sid and Nancy. And with, there's this allusion to them having all of these like fights and arguments, but I don't think you really see them fight more than once or twice. And so that kind of rings false. Mm. But when you do see them have their fights, they do feel like quite real and uncomfortable. And it feels like if you're meant to think, oh, this is all just from Tom's perspective and like it's this kind of like jaundice view of it, he wouldn't look as bad in it and she wouldn't look so good. Yeah. But then 
if it's meant to be, oh, he's actually learned all these things and he's really self-aware and he's viewing himself in an actually very realistic way, then why is his worldview validated at the end? It's very, it's like there are these things in the movie that are kind of existing at the same time that don't really seem to mesh with that interpretation, which is why it's always struck me as a, as a really weird one to use to defend the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that I think you're right. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is, is aware of this and is far more, um, is far more charming as Tom than Tom has any right to be. But also there's like, I was just thinking now if you were to do like Mary Poppins as a horror movie or Shining as a romantic comedy, uh, as a wacky comedy thing with his performance, like you could totally take his scenes, put some kind of, put like Trent Reznor score underneath it and just be like about a guy who starts going on 8chan (laughs) or whatever. Like there is like, there is a total vibe to him that is real kind of MRA sort of stuff years before like that had really been codified quite as much back when you think about MRA, you think about people dressed as superheroes standing on a ledge. Um, That may be exceedingly a British reference for any of our (laughs) non-British audiences, but that was a, that was a real thing in the early 2000s. Google fathers Uh, for justice if you dare. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, like that that is like the vibe that his performance puts off in a lot of ways, particularly in like you say with that scene of him, uh, Mackenzie being like, oh yeah, he's a he's a bit she's she's like a stuck up bitch or whatever, and then him, kind of initially going like, oh maybe she's like you know maybe she was like busy or whatever, and then almost immediately being persuaded like no yeah. she must be a terrible person. I like, don't that, is, that anyway. Yeah yeah yeah. And then, and then a total essentially, Neil Laboot thing. Yeah, and then essentially stalking her, mm. and 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 instead of just being like upfront and communicating, loudly playing, please, 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 let me get what I want from his desk as yeah. she walks past at work. Like what? All, all of this kind of like deep codified longing, where it's like just ask her out, dude. Like what? And I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is aware of. I just think it's interesting that Joseph Gordon-Levitt then goes on to uh, make the film Don John, which I think is great mm. and overlooked, and um, an important an important flag staked um, in sort of cultural uh, conversation. I think it's a little bit ahead of its time. It does have Scarlett Johansson in it, sorry, but is a really, I think, much more self-aware and genuinely moving when it comes to the denouement than 500 days of summer ever ever was yeah so was there anything you liked in the movie (laughs) um a couple of my a couple of songs i quite like yep but i like the songs because they're the songs i like not because of the movie yeah, I do remember like watching this again. I remember at the time just being really being put off by the the choice of the songs, even though they were all songs I like. Like literally, this playlist is Ed's iPod circa two thousand and seven. Particularly <laughs> like Regina Spector, Doves, uh, Pixies, Smiths. Like it's all on there. That was all stuff that I was listening to walking around Sheffield. But like that sense of just thinking like this is really reaching for people like me in a way that i find really desperate yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) like it's a 
real signifying, oh, this is for cool people. Yeah. This is this is the rom com for millennials, even though we don't call them millennials yet. Although I know actually maybe the name Millennials is around then. But like this is for you who have just graduated and are terrified that the job market's not going to exist in six months. Yeah. Like that like that. I remember being put off by that. And even though I like all those songs, they're all good songs and I I like them. Like just every time they crop up, it's like all the music being used in uh, Suicide Squad, like the real over obvious use of songs in that where I was thinking, you know, Christ, use a different song off the last broadcast, you know, (laughs) (laughs) don't just go for the singles. There's some other songs that could give you that vibe. Uh, in, in terms of stuff that I, I like, I do think the um, in isolation, the expectations versus reality thing is 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 very well done. I think it uh, gets to the heart of certainly what the the, uh, the the sense of anxiety I feel in some social situations. Yeah. Um, not necessarily in terms of like going somewhere where someone you like is going to be and thinking, oh, how's the night going to go? But just in the sense of like, you know, sometimes going to a party and thinking like, oh God, I just hope this isn't a disaster. And like, in my head, it would actually be the reverse. Like reality would be fine. <laughs> Expectation, <laughs> expectations would be, you know, uh, accidentally falling out of a third story window or something. But like, I do think that that idea is very well implemented and uh, I like seeing how well, it's it's very well timed in how the two different ones play out and certain events in, in each one kind of playing out at the same time or with a slight delay so that you can focus on one side. I think that is, is really well implemented. Um, and I do like the Hall & Oates musical number because I do think there is, it, it kind of hints at a more expressionistic movie than what you ended up with one that kind of articulates the the feelings of of a relationship the highs and the lows um in a way that isn't just what the rest of the movie is which is kind of slightly drably shot occasionally well edited uh, just dialogue scenes like I do like the idea of him looking in the mirror and seeing Han Solo looking back and people kind of slowly kind of dancing around him I'm thinking I think yeah this is this is like really good at articulating the the the, the sheer glee that he is feeling at that moment so oh, I do yeah. I do like that but yeah it's it there, there are these kind of little moments there for me which are, are were in some ways make the movie worse because I see them I think god this could be that you know they could have done more stuff like this and it would have been more interesting like the scene in Ikea there's a bit where they're kind of like play acting being a couple and you kind of think you could have staged this like a 50s sitcom or something you could have like you know kind of made this a little bit bigger than what you're doing instead you kind of have them trade a few barbs run through to here goes the fear again and then have a racist punchline (laughs) the perfect comedy formula (laughs) and just in terms of like i think the thing that was really different this time versus the first time i watched it is as i was watching it and particularly like as the story went along i found myself thinking like oh this was done so much better in love the netflix show which has almost exactly the same setup of like the kind of introverted kind of sad shy guy who's in a job he's not like massively interested in the 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 woman who is more kind of like 
assertive but like a little bit a little bit messier and like maybe their relationship doesn't entirely work but like i think that show partly with like the time you know like this is 95 minutes that was 36 episodes so obviously there's going to be differences but like i really feel as if that show had a better understanding of balancing the perspectives and making everyone feel like be be funny over the top because it's a sitcom but you know kind of fundamentally real people and i feel like it followed the arc of its characters in a way that felt more interesting and satisfying than this and so so having that as a point of comparison also made this look worse because i was thinking oh right remember how like paul rust did this a lot better yeah (laughs) something that i quite liked just like the, the 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 joke in the movie that i thought was quite funny is after he and summer breaks up he's reassigned to sympathy cards uh <laughs> i thought that joke was was quite well handled clark greg is very funny in in that scene and uh yeah i think it, it it's the the punchline that even redeems a scene that's otherwise like pretty terrible because he's going through like some of the cards that tom has been coming up with and they're all just kind of like you know kind of like front image you know kind of hopeful thing and then inside you know horrible message which is kind of like a dumb lame joke but like the thing of him being like we're gonna reassign you to to sympathy and uh sympathy is like that's that's a decent gag yeah there's one but otherwise that's it the whole one (laughs) (laughs) i think i've blunted my hatchet what do you reckon ed (laughs) yeah i think it's well and well and truly hacked (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome Uh, society so we end this episode as we end all episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week that isn't 500 Days of Summer? Literally anything else other than <laughs> 500 Days of Summer. Go explore, kids. I trust you. Stay away it's from this. It's a big this. wide world out there. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to recommend a YouTube video by Shannon Strucci and H Bomber Guy called Scanline. Uh, what is the value of the director's cut it's a 40 minute little mini documentary about the history of the director's cut and it's very very good it's a follow-up to the video they did last year about uh, vhs and the kind of magical quality of watching stuff in a less polished quality and and the way in which uh, various movies benefited from being seen on a lower resolution format Uh, this one digs into things like Blade Runner and the history of Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now, THX 1138, all these movies that kind of famously have had director's cuts and interrogates the what what a director's cut means you know what does it mean for authorship what does it mean in terms of like as a as a commercial uh, venture how it's changed over the years from maybe something that it was genuinely allowing a director to have a say in a work that had previously been taken away from them to now just being something you slap on a blu-ray to sell extra copies of it um there's a very funny bit where they just show someone scrolling through all the dvds on amazon that have director's cuts and some of them are just odd (laughs) things you would (laughs) things you wouldn't think would deserve a director's cut and it's very good very fun very informative and it's on it's on youtube i'll put a link in the description
If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Playfam, Spotify, all the usual places. Uh, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 